Imagine what you can do if you made an extra million dollars and invested those dollars over a 30-year career. It is multi-million dollars in opportunity cost. So doing this is really, really valuable for your bottom line, especially if you're pursuing financial independence because just acquiring those dollars, being able to put them to work is gonna change your life. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. If you want the episode show notes for this episode, go to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this episode. In the show notes, you'll get the transcribed version of the conversation, the links that we mentioned, and so much more. Also, whether you are an OG journeyer or brand new to the podcast, I've created a free jumpstart guide to help you on your financial freedom journey. It includes the top episodes to listen to, stages to go through to reach financial freedom, resources, and so much more. You can go to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart to get your guide right now. Okay, let's hop into the episode. Hey, journeyers, I have a special guest. I know I say that all the time, but I think it's going to be an enlightening conversation with today's guest, Andrew Gincola, who is the host of the Personal Finance Podcast. So it's something we obviously like to talk about both Andrew's personal finance. And on your show, you talk about side hustles, negotiating your salary, career advancement, investing, all the things that journeyers love to dive into. And your goal is to teach as many people as possible how to build generational wealth. So we are on the same page. And I'm so excited to introduce you to my audience. So welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Jamila, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> all right. So Andrew, I want to dive a little bit in before we press record, we were kind of going back and forth a little bit, um, talking about podcast equipment and how I need to upgrade my podcast life. And yours is so cool from what I see, because right now, everyone, I'm actually watching or seeing Andrew on camera. And I said to you, I was like, I think my audience would love to like learn how you accomplished so far of, of created this life of freedom that you have for yourself. And so first, let's start about wh where you are. So you run your own business. You have you have a pretty popular finance channel, right? So share where you are in terms of followers and what you've been doing. And then we'll go back to see how you started. Absolutely. So what I do right now is I host the personal finance podcast, like you said, and we have about 300,000 to 400,000 downloads per month. Um, we've been around for about two years now. And in addition, we do some stuff on YouTube, social media and stuff. We've grown a TikTok in the last couple of months to about 120,000 followers that we started like early June, somewhere around there. So some of the things that we did based on the podcast and how to build this out was I wanted to bring a different angle to personal finance. And my different angle is bringing as much energy as possible. You can probably hear me now. I get really excited about talking about this. Um, so it's one of those things where I am just so excited about this that it is the energy just, just comes out for me. So it's one of those things that I am so incredibly passionate about teaching people how to build wealth and how they can build generational wealth for their family. Um, and so it's that's where we kind of started this. So that's where we are right now. And um, I can tell you the whole journey of how we got here. Yeah, I'd love to go back because you also started in a job working for someone else and now have managed to start and run your company successfully and are on the path to financial independence. So a lot of listeners want to do the same, right? I'm doing the same. 
And let's start back to the beginning. How did you realize that this could be a pathway, personal finance or your own like entrepreneurship? And then how did you have the courage to, to go out on your own to do that? Absolutely. So I was really passionate about personal finance all the way back into high school. But what happened was after I graduated college, I got my first job and I was paid $30,000 a year. And as most people understand, $30,000 a year doesn't get you very far in this world. So I realized very quickly that I was living paycheck to paycheck. In fact, one time I went to a gas tank to fill up my gas and I did not have enough money in my checking account to fill up that gas tank. And it made me so mad and so frustrated that I said, this is never going to happen again. So what I did was I figured out how to turn my money around. So how did I do that? Because I went from $30,000 a year at age 22 to going up to my first 100K in net worth at the age of 25. So how did I go about doing this? The first thing I did was I started a budget. And just having that budget into place show me where my dollars were going. And then once I had that in place, there was a number of things that I did to increase my income to get to that first 100K. Then I was looking at, okay, negotiating my salary. There's a bunch of other things that I wanted to do. So we started to do um, things like that to increase our income. And we can go into all the details of the side hustles, all that stuff I did as well. But then the next step that I took was I was working directly under a CEO and COO of this company. And I was creating special financial reports for them. And eventually we got to build a relationship and we started a real estate company outside of this company. And I started to do that full time. So I was the sweat equity partner. They were the cash partner. And so we, we started building wealth with real estate. We built up a portfolio of rental properties. And once we had those rental properties in place, a couple of years later, I decided I can do this on my own because they have the majority ownership since they're the cash partners. So we ended up liquidating the portfolio. And that's how I got to around COVID times. And when when COVID started, um, we started the personal finance podcast and started to educate as many people as possible how to build wealth and all the tools, tricks and things that I learned along that path. Got it. All right. So there's so many like places we could jump into the backstory you just said, and I think it would be valuable to dive deeper into how you got from just making $30,000. And when you graduated college, did you have debt? What was your degree in? What did your financial picture look like then? Sure. So I had about $2,500 in a mutual fund that I started investing very early on. I did not have debt at all. So I was really, really um, fortunate to not have any debt, any student loan debt until I got married. And my wife had a little bit of student loans um, along that journey. And then from there, I really started from ground zero. So I started with basically a $0 net worth um, at 22. And in those three years got to the first 100k at 25. Got it. Now, were you living in a low cost of area, high cost of area? Paint that picture for us in terms of expenses. Sure. So from the expense side, I live in Florida. So Tampa, Florida is the area that I live in. So we have like a middle ground cost of living. Now we're actually one of the top inflation areas as we're talking today. But at the time when I was first starting out, we were probably in the middle ground for the for the the country there. So our expenses every single month were just a few thousand dollars. I think at that time I was paying rent at six or seven hundred bucks, which now that same place would be, you know, twenty five hundred dollars a month just 10 years later. So it's one of those things that I think uh, my cost of living was low enough to be able to just get by on that $30,000 a year, but I knew I couldn't build wealth on that very early on. And what was your first uh, job or was that what was that industry in that you started? So I was a financial analyst for a, a really large healthcare company. So my job was to create reports, like I said, for the, the CEO and COO I was on like a very special team. So we would go and figure out problems, um, financial problems, and then figure out ways to solve them is what we essentially did. Okay, got it. All right. That background is interesting or cool to know. It kind of reminds me 
a little bit of me because I started working in corporate America, but for a, a big insurance company and also doing reporting and analytics in a lot of the areas in my function, which I think helped me when it came to plotting out how I was going to reach financial independence because I was so used to running formulas and scenarios out on these spreadsheets. Absolutely. It sounds like it's the exact same thing. Yeah. Okay. So cool. Uh, When you now were able to get to that $100,000 network, is that just primarily investing and saving? It was primarily investing and saving. And when I started to kind of run the math, I very quickly realized I wanted to get to that first 100K as quickly as possible. One of my favorite investors of all time is Warren Buffett. And his business partner, Charlie Munger, talks about how you need to get to your first 100K as fast as you possibly can. Because the the compound interest equation starts to flip a little bit. It's not like it's absolutely magic. But what happens there is when you're saving to your first 100K, about 75% is your savings rate. And about 25% is compound interest. So getting to that point as fast as possible is one of the biggest things that we love to talk about only because it really helps you accelerate your path to wealth. And so I started to run that math. Being a finance guy, I put it into spreadsheets like a nerd. And when I started to run that math, I realized, okay, I need to accelerate my path as fast as possible. So I did a bunch of things to be able to get to that point. So I'm curious because just because you're, you work in the finance field and you know how to run these calculations, does it always translate into personal finance? And like, I knew a lot of people who could do what we did too, and they were not and are not as in tune with their finances. So how did you at such a young age know to care about that? So very, very early on, I read a a couple books in high school. I remember these books being really, really important for me. One of them was The Millionaire Next Door. So learning how to become frugal and, and doing that whole process. Another one was Rich Dad, Poor Dad and learning how to put your money in assets. But there's a bunch of other ones out there in blog articles and things that I kind of learned that I need to start to build wealth early because once you start to build wealth early, it becomes much easier for most people um, than starting later on in life. So once I kind of understood that and wanted to get my dollars to work for me, then I understood that, you know, going forward, I want to make sure that I'm building wealth for the future. Got it. That makes sense. And what was, you know, the people around you? Because I'm assuming if you started out with the people who are also making the same amount or um, friends and family, were you that much different from them? And because maybe someone listening is also starting at this point and they're like, okay, I make this much, but I need to prioritize saving and investing. And that might not be the reality for what their friends and family are doing. So how did you prioritize that? And how was that environment with your peers? I realized very early that most people don't do this. And this is one thing where it started an impetus, right? My first financial thing that I actually did online was I started a blog called Dollar After Dollar. And we don't post on there anymore. It still exists. You can go read it if you want. But that was a financial blog that I had very early on. And um, so I tried to start to teach people about this stuff because I realized nobody was really doing this. And what I did was I have a very systematic way of breaking down goals. And I kind of learned this early on. So I looked at what my three-year plan was, and then I broke it down into a one-year plan. Then what do I need to do every single quarter? And what do I need to do every month? And then what do I need to do every week? And then every day and breaking it down into really small daily chunks was really helpful for me. It's like that 1% better every single day. And that's kind of what I focused on was getting 1% better with my money every single day. And by doing that, it really helped me very slowly. It felt slow in the moment, but over time it happened very quickly to be able to kind of build that wealth to get to that point within those three years so I could get to that first 100K and then accelerate the path after that. Right. I know you started the blog, but how did your family or friends react to that? Or do they know about it? Because I know when I first started journey to launch, I wasn't as vocal with the people in my life about it. 
you know, if that makes sense, it was more for the internet friends, not like, because I kind of wanted to keep it a, a secret or to myself for a bit. Very early on, I did the same thing. So for the first six months, nobody really knew about it. And I think after those six months, nobody was really reading the blog. It was still very early on. And then what happened was I would start to talk to friends about this. And I noticed most of them just did not want to hear it. They didn't want to hear what I was talking about or what could happen with their money because I hadn't really fully done it yet. So once I got to the point where um, I saved enough money and had an example that you could kind of get to this point, then they started to listen a little bit more and understood what was going on. And eventually what they saw was that over time, the example was showing that if you do some of these things, you can live a different lifestyle than what most people have to live, where you have to grind every single day work your nine to five, live in that cubicle. And what I want to do is free as many people as possible from the cubicle life as possible if they don't like their job. Now, if they love their job, then obviously you want to do that as long as possible. But if you don't like your job, there is a way out. And that's what financial freedom helps you do. Totally agree. Now, talk a little bit about increasing your skill sets and earning more money. And you said you have a specific system on how to do that. So let's talk about it. Absolutely. So the first thing I did was I knew that I wanted to increase my income and I wanted to do it at my job because that's where I spent the most of my time. So we have a very specific system on how to increase your income at your job. And it starts with talking and communicating with your boss. And the way that you communicate with your boss is you set up a meeting maybe before your performance review six months in advance. And what you do is you say, hey, here is what I want to do. I want to increase my income. I want to make more money, but I also want to help profitability. I want to help production with the company. How can we do this? How can we get to this point? And doing this in advance means that nobody is going to be surprised when you come to the performance review. Um, you're not going to walk into your boss's office the day of and say, hey, I want to raise. And they're surprised. They have to go talk to a bunch of people. Instead, you're going to ask them about this. You're going to talk through it. And they're going to say, what do I have to do to get to that point within six months? Then three months later, you're going to check back in with your boss and see if you're on track. They're going to give you a couple of things that you need to be doing. Maybe it's taking on more projects. Maybe it's uh, speaking up in meetings. There's a bunch of different things you could be doing. But at the three-month review, then you're going to check in and say, hey, am I on track for this? So both of you were still on this same page. Because a lot of times in the corporate world, especially um, bosses get really busy. And a, and a lot of times they forget that conversation that you had six months ago. So you want to be checking in at least every couple of months to get to that point. Then one month out again, you're going to check in one more time. And then by the time you walk into that performance review, they know what's coming. They know you're going to ask for a raise and they know that you can have that negotiation process there. So that is kind of the quick version of how we talk about this to get to that point. So I did that a number of times. My wife has done the same system a number of times. And now we've had a bunch of people who listen to podcasts who do it, who have gotten thousands and thousands of dollars worth of raise. We've had people get $50,000 raises by just doing this process. Um, so it's one of those cool things where it's just a communication process between you and your boss, and you can really get to that point by doing that. In addition, after actually negotiating my salary, I took on a bunch of different side hustles. So one of my favorite ones was flipping items. So I did Amazon FBI, FBA, where I would flip items um, by going doing retail arbitrage, for example. So what that is, you go to say Walmart or Target and you go scan items in the Amazon app and see if it's going to be profitable on Amazon. Then you can ship those items out to Amazon and then they sell on Amazon and Amazon does the rest. They ship it to the, everybody. Um, so it's a very simple process to start to make additional income. And then another thing I did was I started a Christmas tree stand, one of those side of the road Christmas tree stands um, where we had, my wife had a family friend who that's all she did. 
was she had two Christmas tree stands and she made $100,000 a year, just two months out of the year with two Christmas tree stands. So I said, let me try this. So we opened up a Christmas tree stand um, and that was like our first entry point into our own business. And we did this nights and weekends. Um, it would be open nights and weekends and we would get the trees in and then we would um, display them and we did really well our first year. So we continued to do that for a little while. Wait, where'd you get the Christmas trees from? So there's a farm in North Carolina that we got them from. So luckily having that connection with my wife's um, aunt helped us actually get to that point where we could talk to that farm. And I think the initial investment was $7,000 at the beginning, which was a a ton of money for us. And luckily they helped us do like a credit for half of it to get that inventory in. And then the other half we paid them afterwards. Got it. And I have never spent Florida. Are you still in Florida? I am still in Florida. I'm still in Tampa. Okay. And I've never spent uh, Christmas down South or in Florida. So I'm assuming though Christmas trees still something that you guys love having without the snow. They absolutely are. It makes your house smell amazing if you have a live one. Um, but you can go to the beach in Florida a lot of times on Christmas. So it's much hotter here than it is up north. We don't have a, a white Christmas like most people do. Right, right. Well, I want to go back a bit to negotiating salary. And I'm definitely not one to try to argue for limitations here. Meaning I know the benefits of advocating for yourself negotiating your salary and all those things. And I'm sure people do also, like they know what they should do, but a lot of times what prevents them are the mental blocks, like confidence. And you seem like a very confident person. Like you go go in for what you want. How would you talk to someone who doesn't necessarily feel as confident, maybe feels if they lead with money or talk about this in this way, they may seem unlikable or they they may be judged. And I know for, and I don't mean to make, make a blank, blanket statement, but I know for some women, that's also, which it shouldn't be true, and, and it's not necessarily true, is that they're more hesitant versus maybe their male counterparts who just go in and act like they own the room. So talk to us a bit more about increasing confidence and having that ability to go in and ask for what you want. I absolutely love this because I was scared to death the first time I did this. And I was, I'm an introvert really at heart, and I've kind of learned to come out of my shell over time. The thing about negotiating, the thing about negotiating your salary is this is actually a skill, and it takes practice to be able to get good at it. The first time you do it, you're not going to be that great at it, but you have to start somewhere. And so kind of building that confidence, it one one big thing to build that confidence that helped me was learning the math behind this. Now, a lot of people aren't going to do the math, but there were studies done, like Business Insider came out with a study that was done, that if you just negotiate your salary 3% every every four years, and you negotiate a salary at 5% when you first get your job, then you would make a million dollars more than a person who did not negotiate their salary. So this is really a million dollar problem that you can solve for yourself if you learn how to build up this skill. So practicing is the first thing I would do meaning I would get with your friends or maybe even someone you'd be uncomfortable practicing with and seeing if you can start to practice this negotiation process. A lot of times we use scripts. So we talk about having a script in place, learning that script, and then you can get more comfortable with it and make it a little more natural. That's the first thing I would look at is practicing because it is a skill to be able to do that. Then if you can do it in low stakes environment, maybe there's a middle level manager that you can talk to first and start having that conversation before you go to the decision maker. That's going to also help you practice this, go through the process and see what it actually feels like. Because sometimes you can get into a negotiation. You can walk into your boss's office and freeze. I know one time I did that where it was something that I just got a little too nervous and you would freeze. Instead, once you start to build up the skill and exercise this muscle, 
it is going to be something that you can get much better at and develop that skill. So this is something where you definitely want to keep practicing. If you don't have anybody to practice with, practice in the mirror, but just keep going through the process and getting reps in. And it's going to really help you when it comes to negotiation time. Right. And I also find that even outside of the actual scenario, practicing in just real life is helpful. So at a restaurant or in a store, just asking questions. I find that this problem of speaking up is not just within the job area or for career. Like I notice the people who can't do it in that area don't do it in other areas where, okay, let's start small then, right? It could just be boundary setting and talking with your family about something, right? Where you're practicing a little bit, increasing your confidence and speaking up. And there's a guy named Noah Kagan who he talks about doing this all the time. He uh, founded a, a company called AppSumo. And what he talks about is he actually goes into to practice this muscle. He goes into restaurants, for example, or he'll go to a coffee shop and he'll negotiate the price of the coffee. And he'll just do this to practice the reps. And it's really uncomfortable and it's really awkward. And it's something you may not want to do, but it just helps you through that process. And just thinking about it this way, if I practice this over and over and over again, it's a million dollar difference to my bottom line by retirement time. Imagine what you can do if you made an extra million dollars and invested those dollars over a 30-year career. It is multi-million dollars in opportunity cost. So doing this is really, really valuable for your bottom line, especially if you're pursuing financial independence, because just acquiring those dollars, being able to put them to work is going to change your life. Right. And also looking at it from the perspective of, okay, you're not treating the other person as an adversary or trying to take advantage, but looking at it as I am asking for my worth or in the case of it's funny negotiating for your coffee. uh, It's more like a practice, right? Like it's it's done in a way which I can't see myself doing, but I could see potentially benefit in it is is like here's just a, a dance that I'm learning to do with a stranger, which will help me in other areas. Exactly. It's just a win-win situation. So you're providing as much value as you possibly can, and you're providing what you're worth, and then they are just giving you the value back. So that is kind of, you want to make sure it's a win-win here so that it's not some cutthroat negotiation. You want to make sure this is a win-win situation so that you both are on the same page. And that's why the communication for that long period of time is really, really important. And you did say, right, like it's when you go into that office and say, hey, I want to earn more money, but I also want to do this for the company. And I want to, you always Tell them what's in it for them. Here's what I want to do for you. That's really important key that I think we should highlight. Absolutely. That's the that's one of the biggest things is you're providing that value. Did you know I broke out the path to financial independence into what I call five journeyer stages? That's right. There are five stages that you have to travel through to reach complete financial independence. When you know your stage, you know what to focus on and how to move on to the next stage. I created a free one-minute quiz to help you determine what stage you're in. After you take the quick quiz, you'll know where you are on your financial independence journey, the main thing you should focus on, plus you'll get a curated list of 10 Journey to Launch podcast episodes to listen to that will help you for your specific stage. Go to journeytolaunch.com slash mystage right now to take the free quiz. That's journeytolaunch.com slash my stage. In the same company, that's where you rose to the point where the CEO asked you to start a real estate company or was that another company? That was the same company. So um, I worked in the department that he actually sanctioned an entire department that would do these special reports for him. So I worked in that department and then we built a relationship over the, the next couple of years. And with that, this real estate like was this a so real estate had nothing to do with the what job you guys were doing at the time it was a interest that he had or was investing in and 
you were able to connect and then do this? Sure. So we, I had a really big interest in real estate. And I was actually actively looking for properties. I would listen to like the Bigger Pockets podcast, for example, and I would listen all the way to back to episode one and go through it. And I was sitting in my cubicle and just listening to this all the time, like, oh, this is a great way to get to financial freedom. And I couldn't stop talking about it. So we were at lunch one time and I was, I was talking about it. And I noticed he was kind of watching and, and kind of thinking through it a little bit. And then a couple months later, pulled me aside, had the conversation and said, hey, listen, we have this cash because they owned a bunch of different businesses on the side. They said, we had this cash. If you want to start a company, we can do this together and we'll put the cash up and then you do the sweat equity. You do all the work managing the properties, finding the properties, all of those different things. Well, isn't it interesting, right? Like you had this interest interest outside of your nine to five and you were open and talking about it. And then, you know, people around you, you just don't know who also is interested in it or has the ability or means to help you move further. I think it's fascinating because sometimes you're scared to talk about that with other people because, you know, rightfully so, you don't know if they may take that negatively. Like, if I talk about this, they may think I'm leaving the job, so I'll keep it to myself. But in your case, it seems like talking about your interest helped move you along further. Exactly. I think it definitely has to be the right person to to absorb that information. Um, and so I knew, I knew that they owned a bunch of other businesses. So I thought that was kind of like one of the things that they'd be interested in just talking about. I was just kind of talking about the, the same interest. And it was interesting because you could actually see the light bulb going off in their head as I had that conversation with them, which is cool. So this is interesting. Now you decided to leave your, this corporate job, start this on the side with the CEO of the job you left. Is that correct? Correct. How did you feel comfortable enough to, I mean, unless there was some guarantees, some contract signed, but now I'm just wondering, you're leaving this behind to start something new. How did you financially feel okay with taking that risk? So I saved up um, a big chunk of cash into my emergency fund so I could kind of have a runway here. So I had about eight to nine months of runway here. And I figured in nine months, if this didn't work, I would at least have this runway. In addition, my wife still had her job as well. So that helped supplement the income on that front. And then what we did was we did sign contracts immediately. So that was another surety that we had there um, where they hired lawyers. They had them come in. We signed contracts so that I could actually trust them throughout that process. So it seemed like a very surefire thing to do. We opened an LLC in all of our names. All of our names were on the LLC. So we had all of those things in place before we started. So I wanted to make sure I had enough cash on hand so I could actually take this risk. I didn't have kids yet. If I had kids, I probably wouldn't have taken the risk. But I'm so glad that I did because it led to so many different things after that. Well, let's talk about that. So you now go to this new company. What is your role there? Or what are you doing? And give us that picture. Sure. So I am literally doing everything. So I didn't have any employees or anything like that. So the first thing I did was I would go try to find properties so we could find rental properties. So a big thing for me was I was making a whole lot of offers. So I got my real estate license just to make these offers because I knew a, a real estate agent probably wouldn't want to make 100 offers every single month to be able to acquire property. So I was making offers on every single MLS property that was out there. Are these residential properties or what kind of properties are we talking about? They are. So my we specialized in um, single family houses and then really small multifamily. So fourplexes, triplexes and quad duplexes. Um, so those were the properties that we were looking for. And the single family properties I really loved just because the tenants a lot of times would stay a lot longer than they would in the small apartments and small multifamily properties. And so in addition, once we would acquire those properties and my job was also to manage them. And I found very quickly that you have to learn how to have systems into place uh, when you're managing property. So we found a bunch of systems, put them into the business and then kind of implemented all of those as well. And in addition, if we had to renovate some of these properties, I was managing all the contractors and all that side. And we would acquire about one to two properties every single month. And that was kind of our goal. And I wish I bought everything in sight, but 
2020 is hindsight. So that's that's one of the the cool things about that. So I was running every, I was wearing every single hat within this company. Wow, that's impressive. I my background is in real estate too. I was an asset manager, but for multifamily units and I know all the work it takes to do something like that even though I was I had a lot more structure because I worked in a corporate environment. But with that, right? You were getting all this experience in real estate. Was this translating into your like actual wealth also or was this just for the company? It absolutely was. So because I was a minority owner, they owned 80%, I owned 20%. Because I was that minority owner, every single property that we acquired, I owned 20% of it. So our wealth started to build that way. And that was kind of the cool thing about this. And, and what we kind of did was eventually we built a relationship with the hedge fund and the hedge fund would give us properties that maybe they had problem tenants in or properties that just weren't performing as well as they wanted. And then we would take them over and increase and help appreciate those properties so that we can get them to the next level. Got it. Got it. Now, what was then the moment that you decided that that chapter was ending to where you're doing what you're doing now full time? So I I figured very early on, since they had the majority of it, I figured I could do this on my own. I'm doing all of this work. Um, but this is something that I could definitely do on my own because I had all the skills that they didn't even have much of a say in terms of what we were doing day to day. So we kind of built it up just just me on my own. But I, I needed them obviously to have the cash there. So eventually we came to an agreement that they were happy with it, that we would do an exit because the properties had appreciated so much that we were able to sell them at a much higher rate and then exit from there. So, you know, hindsight, I wish I would have just bought them all off off of them, but it was definitely something that was worthwhile because it allowed us to get to this next step where we are now. Right. Now, I, you know, as you were talking about the buying, especially the single family and the smaller unit homes, I'm wondering if you can provide some insight. Because there's, you know, the conversation of investing and buying real estate, whether it's flipping it, improving it while it for the person, it can make you a lot of money or the company, right? Like, how does it affect the communities that that's happening to? And, you know, I'm not sure the way you guys did it, but I'm wondering if there's some insight for people who are straddling that line. And this is kind of a heavy question, but how do you do it and make sure you're doing it in an ethical way, right? Where you are not displacing or pricing out people because you do want to, if you're buying something, earn a profit. So I wonder if you have any insight on that. Absolutely. So the biggest thing that we did, was we would help improve the properties right off the bat. So we would take them over. And a lot of times these were really problem properties. It was either struggling landlords that just weren't taking care of the properties. So the properties were just completely demolished. Sometimes I remember one we acquired, I went in there, the tenant completely abandoned the property and left a ton of different just items and things that we had to, to pull out. And so they were just completely destroyed inside sometimes. So we would actually improve the property, which kind of helped improve the values around that area. And in addition, when we priced them, our biggest thing was making sure that we were at a lower than the, you know, we were at a competitive price within that area so that we could have, you know, adequate housing for people in that area. So one of the big things was we never had the highest price even remotely close to there. And I, I did that on intentionally. There's a couple, there's business reasons why I did that, which was you can get a renter faster because if you have a vacant property for a very long period of time, it's something that you definitely don't want to have in place. But also we wanted to have the best property at that fair value. So that's kind of what our, our business model was, was making sure that we were right in the middle ground on those properties so that we can you know, have a profitable business, but at the same time, have the best property on that street. So th those two things were what we combined to try to improve those properties, because that is a major, major factor for me. And one thing that I really truly cared about was making sure that we had fair pricing on our rents and making sure we had the best possible house for those tenants. Got it. Now, again, you're now, you decided, wait, I'm doing all this work. I could probably do this on my own or do something else. 
Tell me about that decision and what happens next. So that decision came into play. We had the conversation and immediately they were they were for it. They were happy with it um, because of that appreciation of the properties. They have so many businesses that it was one of those things where, you know, they're you know out of sight, out of mind type of thing. So it was a very easy process to go through and immediately the properties sold very quickly. Um, and then exiting that, I decided, what am I going to do next? So this and then all of a sudden COVID came around. So COVID came around and I was like, OK, well, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start this podcast and I'm going to try to teach as many people as possible what I've learned along the way from my personal finance side to everything I know from the real estate side. And kind of combining all of these things, the career side, all of these different things, we started the podcast. And originally, it was just my mom and my wife who listened to the podcast. We kind of had zero audience there. And then um, and then started to grow it very, very slowly. So I think in the first six months, we maybe had um, just a few thousand downloads over that time frame. But then eventually, it started to get shared, and it started to grow. And in the first year, we had 100,000 downloads a month, which we were really excited about. And then kind of started to grow it from there and do some other things. But most of it, and almost all of it, was organic. That's that's great. Now, I want to go a little bit back to your decision to branch out and almost do be like a generalist in this, like talk about all parts of personal finance versus just real estate, because it seems like you obviously you have a robust experience. So you could have just went and started like a bigger pockets kind of podcast or just have a specific business right based on real estate and forget the podcast and media side. But continuing to invest in real estate could have been just your only straight pathway to financial independence like a lot of people do. So I'd love to hear the decision making around choosing to go in this route versus the others. One thing I want people to know about real estate, and this is a big thing to understand, is real estate is actually a lot of work. And when you go through the process, especially when you're doing all of it at once, a lot of people make it seem like it's something where you can just kind of invest in the properties, put a property manager in place, and you don't have to do anything else. But really, it's a lot more work than other investment vehicles. So one big thing that we love to invest in is index funds, for example, passive, low cost index funds. And real estate is much harder than that. And there's a lot of things you have to know before getting into real estate. I think it's higher risk, but it's higher reward that you can have in place. But it is a lot more work. So the reason why we went the route for a little bit of everything is because that's really what I'm doing day to day. I have some real estate in my portfolio. I have a lot of uh, index funds in my portfolio. And this is kind of what I'm doing. And I'm trying to teach exactly what I'm doing every single day. So I have my hand in a bunch of other things. But this is kind of what I'm doing with my personal finance. And that's kind of what, why we went with the broad range, because I think it's one of the things that a lot of people can follow the same steps and be able to get to that point where they can build generational wealth for their families. And it sounds like you just stayed true to your willingness to be active within the investments. And I think it's just a great point or side to show because you'll see online like, OK, if you like you said, invest this money, you'll get these returns like real estate is the way to go, which it can be if you have the energy, time and care to do that. But like you, I also thought my millions would come in real estate. I was so interested in it. And look, I, I never got as far as you. I, I own the condo that I first bought and then. My husband and I ended up buying a condo that we rented out and I still own the condo I rent out, but we sold the second one. And even just when I had tenants and I could have hired someone, but it was just a small property. It was, like, you know, a small 600 square foot unit. I just realized, like, I don't want to have to manage this. If there's an easier way to build wealth and do this, I will go that way. And if another opportunity comes up with real estate, I'll do that. But it's just great to see the other side of someone who actually knows real estate can probably make a ton of money investing and chooses not to because it's just not for them. 
It, it is. And it's just one of those things where you have to, it's, it's not, a lot of people just make it like you go on TikTok or Instagram, for example, and you just see all these um, real estate investors saying it's the easiest thing in the world to just buy a property. It starts to cash flow, but it's really not that way. And in reality, it's one of those things where it is a very difficult thing unless you know exactly what you're doing. And knowing exactly what you're doing takes a lot of time and skill and practice. Um, and so putting the right systems into place is a big thing. And even if you have a property manager, you still have to manage that property manager. And so you're still managing people. You're still doing a lot of different things because nobody cares about your property as much as you do. So that is one thing to just remember is that over time, it's a lot. E- there's other investments that are a lot easier and they may even be just as profitable depending on where you're investing. Yeah. Solid points. Now, talk a little bit about your growth within entrepreneurship. I think for anyone who's starting out, right, maybe they're right now in a cubicle, in a job, and they're just like, I don't want to do this. I want to do my own thing. But how do I go from zero followers, zero listeners to millions of downloads or millions of followers? For you, I know that that didn't happen overnight. Obviously, you just shared a little bit of that. But how did you start to stick out? What were some of the strategic things you started to do to grow? Because it's only been two years now, right, that you started the podcast. How did you How did you grow, in my mind, what's, or just anyone from the outside looking in within those two years so quickly? So the cool thing is with doing side hustles and, and having the blog and things like that, I think side hustles are low risk entrepreneurship. And so you learn a lot of lessons just by doing side hustles. I had a lot of failed niche sites, for example, and other things that I did online. And one of the biggest things I realized very early on is consistency, for example. So one big thing was on the blog, I should have consistently been posting, you know, two, three times a week, but instead I was inconsistent when I went throughout that process. So there was a bunch of lessons I took from my old entrepreneurship days, um, very early on in my early twenties. And I brought them to the podcast, meaning understanding what you need to do and the right things to do and the right steps to take in order to grow something. So the first thing obviously was at least having one episode every single week. And then from there kind of growing it and building it out. So I wanted to make it the most shareable, bingeable personal finance podcast I could. So we would try to bring energy into it. We would try to take different angles on a lot of different things. We had shorter episodes. And so doing some of those things, hopefully people would kind of binge through the podcast and and go throughout that process. And I took a lot of inspiration from a lot of people. So I would take inspiration from all over the internet, say, what are these people doing well? And then what are they not doing as well that I kind of want to avoid? And so I would make lists and do all of these different things to kind of try to make it the best possible podcast I possibly could. And then eventually we branched out into YouTube and other places as well. But that's kind of where we started. And then from there, just figuring out how to grow it. Now, one big thing that I'm learning as of late is uh, how to build out your network, because understanding that you can't do this alone. And I did this alone for a very long period of time, but understanding that if you can build out a network and ask questions and really ask for help, then people are usually willing to help you out and you can grow that much faster if you do that. So there's a couple of lessons that I'm learning along the way here because this is still a new business, but at the same time, a lot of my old businesses, I learned a ton of lessons as well. How did you begin to build the networks that you have now where you can ask that question? So early on, the podcast had zero guests. It was just me talking. And then I realized, you know, I want to get some other perspectives and have other guests on. So the first thing I did was I had other guests on. Then I would start to go to conferences and meet a lot of people at those conferences and start to build that network that way. I had Jordan Harbinger on the show about a year ago or so, and he has some great content on building a network. And I've actually started to follow his system where what his system is, is you can actually reach out to three or four people a day. It just can be a a quick email or a text or something along those lines. And it's a very quick way, five minutes a day to be able to reach out to your network. Because I think your network is one of the most important things that you can have. And I really learned that along along this journey. 
But it's one of the most important things that you can have because if you need something or if you need help, you can help them, but you want to help other people as well. So making sure that um, you are helping others to build your network is one of the biggest things that you can do. Okay, give us an example of reaching out to someone because even I have this issue. I have a great network, I think, because I've been doing the podcast so long and I get to meet all you amazing, all my amazing guests, right? Which is very helpful, right, in my journey. But, you know, what I often find is that I don't need anything mostly from anyone for a lot of the time, right? And I don't want to go and ask the person for a favor. I mean, I can, but most times that's when people feel awkward. Like, why I'm just reaching out for the first time in years for this favor. So I know Jordan, I think I looked over the way he does things, but I'd love for an example of how, whether it's just a keep in touch kind of connection, email or text versus an ask email or text. So really, I never truly, I'm the same way. I, I usually never ask for anything. I usually want to try to help people first. And that's kind of the, the biggest thing with relationship building is you want to make this connection in a way that you are helping first. And it's truly, genuinely, you're helping these folks. And then what happens is kind of things just start to happen. I know that's kind of a weird way to, to say it, but things just start to happen where it helps open up your network. The same thing happened in the real estate side, for example, where on the real estate investing, I used to go to real estate meetups all the time and I would build up a network of other real estate investors. And all of a sudden I was getting more properties and more deals were coming my way because maybe they had properties they didn't want anymore. And so having that network in place saying, hey, if you guys don't want any properties, let me know and I'll take them off your hands. I have my you know cash investors here. We can do a cash deal and do it really quickly. And so if there's properties you don't want, let me help you by taking them off your hands. And that would have, that would be one example of things happening there. In addition, just having conversations with people, for example, at conferences, walking up, just I would walk up to people and, and start talking to them. And like I said, I am introverted at heart. So that was kind of hard to do very early on. But I would start to just walk up to people, start talking to them, tell them about my business, ask how I can help them. I would tell them some of the things that maybe that I knew that they weren't doing those types of things. And that relationship building helped grow out some of the things that we're doing now. All right, let's just say we end this podcast, right? Conversation. And six months from now, you're like, I'm on your list of, okay, I'm going to, you know, follow Jordan's style and just keep in touch. What would you then email or say to me or text me to keep in touch in a way where you're not asking for anything? What do you know that script yet? So I do it a bunch of different ways. So a lot of times I'll see people, for example, doing something really cool. So I'll follow all my network socials and things like that. And I won't comment on social. That's very important to not do it on social because so many people will comment on their socials. The big way to kind of say, and you could do that if you want to keep in touch, you know, on a weekly basis or something like that. But the big thing I would do is say, say, for example, someone hit a new podcast download number, for example, I say, this is amazing that you hit this podcast download number. I'm, you know, so excited for you. Let me know if I can help you in any way um, or if there's anything going on, that type of thing. And so kind of celebrating their wins is the best way I know how to kind of reach out to people. And most people will post their wins or they'll talk about some of their wins. Or you can say, oh, you had an amazing episode with this guest really love that and kind of go through that stuff as well. And you can kind of start a conversation that way. So really, it's just starting conversation, being friends with someone is the better way to do this. And then things just start to actually start happening. That makes sense. Okay. So Andrew, talk a little bit about where you are on the journey to financial independence. So I'm assuming you have not reached it yet. Maybe you have and you just like working, but what does that look like for you? What's, what's the end goal? How, how long do you have left? I know you're a number guy, so you probably have it all calculated out. So what does that look like for you? So we've actually hit like our bare bones financial independence number. I am more interested now. At first, I thought this was the number I kind of wanted to hit. And, you know, early on would follow like Mr. Money Mustache and be really frugal. Everything has changed since I had kids. And there's a lot of differences that have changed since that point in time. Now I'm actually more prone to going towards Fat Fire. If you don't know what Fat Fire, it's kind of like having a higher net worth 
and living off a higher number. So for us, we hit the bare bones, which is so comforting because once you hit that bare bones number, then you can kind of have play with it from then on out. And so now this podcast and and building out um, everything we're doing with Master Money and helping people is one of the biggest passions I've ever had in my life. It's, it's one of the most amazing things to do. So I think I'm going to do this forever. It's going to be one of those things that because I, I absolutely love it every single day. That's kind of where we are in the path. And I would like to get to another point now so that we could reach closer to Fat Fire, just a higher number that we could live off in retirement if we want to. Yeah, isn't it interesting how when you first, when I first found out about financial independence, I thought too, like, oh, I'll just be super frugal and be able to consistently live this like lifestyle. And then I was done having my kids by then, but they were pretty young. And I was like, well, who am I kidding? Like, I want more. I want to do more. And I want to change. So it's, I think that that happens for a lot of people, which is the point. I think that's the point. You have to, things, your mind will change. Your, your tastes will change. You may realize that, hey, you know what? I will give up X to get Y. And it's all going to be a personal decision. But it's important to know that if your mind does change, like that's all part of the journey. Exactly. It's really, financial independence is really like an evolving journey. It's a journey that once you start, it does not mean you have to stay with that number the entire way. And I think a lot of people get stuck on that where they think, okay, I hit my number, but this is not really where I want to be. I've hit the point and I'm uncomfortable still. So there's a lot of things that you can do to be able to make those adjustments. But just realize this is an evolving thing. You do not have to just stick to one number, one path, one plan. Right, right. Now, Andrew, can you tell us anything else you have going on? What's up next for you? Absolutely. So we have um, a new thing that we're doing is we're going to be making a major push on YouTube as well. So we started a YouTube channel a couple of months ago. In addition, we have um, mastermoney.co is launching at the end of the month. So that is one where we're going to have courses and coaching and a bunch of other things that we're going to be offering on there, free courses, all that kind of stuff as well. So we're really excited about some of the stuff that we're doing up front. And like I said, our goal is just to teach as many people as possible how to build wealth. And I think everybody can build wealth. It's just learning and having that financial education. Yes. And tell everyone, again, your podcast so they can check it out. Sure. The podcast is The Personal Finance Podcast, and you can listen to us on any podcast player that you love. All right, Angie, thank you so much. I'll also put all that in the episode show notes for everyone. So thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Don't forget, you can get the episode show notes for this episode by going to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this. And you can still grab your jumpstart guide for free to help you on your journey to financial freedom by going to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart. If you want to support me and the podcast and love the free content and information that you get here, here are four ways that you can support me in the show. One, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you listen, whether that's Apple Podcasts, that purple app on your phone, your Android device, YouTube, Spotify, wherever it is that you happen to listen, just subscribe so you are not missing an episode. And if you're happening to listen to this in Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe there. I appreciate and read every single review. Number two, follow me on my social media accounts. I'm at Journey to Launch on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I love, love, love interacting with journeyers there. Three, support and check out the sponsors of this show if you hear something that interests you. Sponsors are the main ways we keep the podcast lights on here. So show them some love for supporting your girl. Four, and last but not least, share this episode, this podcast with a friend or family member or coworker so that we can spread the message of Journey to Launch. All right, that's it. Until next week, keep on journeying, journeyers. Journeyers.